Hello, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? I'm going to talk about something called modern religions. Many people today say they are unaffiliated or don't have a religion. They are against organized religion and distrust historic institutions or hierarchies. So they feel that they have no religion. But everyone has a religion. There may not be weekly meetings that are attended at traditional brick-and-mortar churches or mosques or synagogues or ashrams or hermitages or monasteries, but there are worship services that outperform traditional liturgies and there are pilgrimages that would rival the Canterbury Tales. Yes, I believe that. People will drive across country to see Mickey Mouse or wait outside bookstores for the next Harry Potter release. They will meet up for costume and role-playing parties where the fantasy is accepted as reality. They will sleep outside on concrete to get the next iPhone. They will fly 10,000 miles to hear the keynote speech from the Apple CEO. The sports pilgrimages that men make to football stadiums is spoken of with hallowed tones, as if to stand where Joe Montana or Joe Namath or Joe Theismann, a lot of quarterbacks named Joe, where they once threw a Hail Mary pass is a more highly regarded holy ground experience than if they stood where Gabriel said the actual words, Hail Mary, full of grace, to the Virgin Mary herself. As a non-believer, when I reviewed my worldview, I realized that I'd found a similar replacement for what I'd had before in traditional religion with curious parallels. A trick of the mind happens when we abandon our idea of religion. When we declare that we have no religion, or that we're a nun, or unaffiliated, we have already replaced our concept of religion with something different, but the parts are all there. So to sum up the modern view that I held, the worldview that I felt had removed all religion, it went something like this. Here's my uh, attempt at a creed when I was fallen away or unaffiliated. The universe was formed from a massive explosion of pre-existing matter, and gradually over time, we humans evolved from single-celled organisms into fully sentient beings, assembled from far-flung star parts and activated by solar power. Whether any pre-existing power or intelligence existed is unknown and unimportant. The creator acted as a clockmaker or artist, if there was a creator, and he crafted or she crafted 100 types of atoms and various physical laws to govern the universe, finely tuning key variables like gravity to keep the dance of atoms and chemistry valid throughout the ages. The laws governing the behavior of matter and energy cannot be broken. The creator, the clockmaker, cannot or chooses not to poke his or her finger into the game to disrupt nature and produce any miracles. We inhabit a speck on a speck known as the planet Earth, which may be one of many habitable planets in the universe. Pursuit of knowledge and progress is the way, as knowledge is leading us toward a promised land of plenty for all and equality for all. Against the forces of superstition and ignorance, progress moved forward. From the first living organism, our earliest ancestor until today, 
the accretion of knowledge is leading to higher life forms. This progress creates stepping stones of knowledge toward when we will be fulfilled in our understanding by advances in science, engineering, and technology. The rapid leap forward we are experiencing today should have, could have, and would have happened much sooner, but free thought was kept imprisoned by religious institutions until the age of the Enlightenment dawned on the Dark Ages. Embattled by its enemies, science has finally been unshackled to reveal the truth of the universe. We were only kept from this future by the backwardness of traditional culture, childish superstition, patriarchy, powerful institutions, and primitive tribal structures. In the near future, planetary death will occur through climate change unless we repent of our wasteful ways and adopt a purely rational scientific view. Through green energy, we will be saved. The day is near when we will be able to transfer our conscious mind into a digital immortality. One day we will escape death, shake off our bodies, and have limitless knowledge and pure freedom. Finally, in the distant future, the solar system will collapse, the sun will swallow the earth, and the universe will consume itself into a singular dense spot of matter and explode once again to restart the cycle. So that was my view of the universe, of the world. And this modern view has it all. And by all, I mean this worldview contains everything that constitutes a religion. I was taking part in the modern religion that has all the trappings of any religion that has ever existed. This modern religion also has its own vocabulary and language and revelations and sacrifices. The priests of this religion even have uniforms or vestments called lab coats, and in the software world, hooded sweatshirts. There are monks and priests in today's secular religion as much as there ever were in Islam, Buddhism, or Christianity. Not only that, but this scientism has the key elements that form a creed. A beginning, an ending, a progression, a hero, a villain, and an apocalypse. I realize the word scientism sounds strange, but I don't know what else it could be called. The only thing missing from it is God. But then it is we ourselves that take God's place. So it certainly does have a God, but it's just an evolved ape who wears clothing and stares at screens all day. This realization was an unexpected discovery to me, but so obvious once examined and dissected. We cannot live without some kind of religion. Everyone walking on this earth has a religion, whether he or she knows it or not. Consider how people will literally sit outside for three days for that Harry Potter or Star Wars movie or book, or they'll camp out all night for, on Black Friday for a sale. Think of how devout members of the Democratic or Republican parties can be and they will spend hours a day trumpeting the good of their own party while calling out the evil of the opposition. Monks could hardly show such dedication in a cloistered desert hermitage. Fashion and musicians and car companies and cosmetics and guns and pornography have their constant dedicated followers, ever faithful and ready to come to the defense of those, those things. 
the willingness to defend these modern things make traditional religious defenders and apologists appear to lack zeal in comparison. So while I pretended not to have a faith, I most certainly did have a religion. We are wired for it. And if it's not Christianity or Islam or Buddhism, a religion will surface in something else, like money or health or technology or Harry Potter or socialism. Science, postmodernism, and socialism are religions in disguise. There's no, there's no question about that. The body itself can become a kind of religion. Literally, millions of devout gym members are attending their worship services on treadmills and leg press machines right now. Everyone is living according to some kind of ultimate faith, whether they admit it or not. And as someone who once found that science and religion could not coexist, I now reject that division, and I almost see it as a cartoonish invention. In fact, I find it to be the opposite, as faith and reason are both needed if any wisdom is to be found. I've mentioned this several times, but faith and reasons are the two wings that make us fly. A bird with one wing cannot leave the ground. To find meaning and purpose in this life, we need both reason and faith. The imaginary battle of faith versus science has been heated and hammered into a modern worldview. It's a pure invention, but children are being steered to believe that invention today, as I certainly was, that they were conflicting things that could not go together. Those driving us in this direction have a clear agenda, and they don't know it, but it's an agenda that will backfire. This way forward will backfire because a worldview that lacks an ultimate meaning results in a lifetime of trying to fit square pegs into the God-shaped hole in our heart. And there is another blowback that is coming, or has already arrived, but this one is for those who guide children away from God, as words directly from Jesus stated plainly, things that cause sin will inevitably occur, but woe to the person through whom they occur. It would be better for him if a millstone were put around his neck and he be thrown into the ocean than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So this blowback is coming for those with and without faith. So just because you have faith doesn't mean you might not get a millstone put around your neck and thrown into the sea. So the first commandment of Jesus was to love God. And thus the very first sin, the worst sin, is to reject God. American culture has fully adopted rejection of God, and I fell for this bait, hook, line, and sinker, for about 15 years. Unfortunately, there is a blaring warning about this for our souls from Jesus as teaching children to reject God or causing them to lose faith is called out specifically as a guaranteed path to hell. <laughs> Turning away from God violates the first rule, not just the Old Testament rules, but of the two commandments of Jesus. The first sin in Genesis was a rejection of God, hence the name original sin. It's funny how things all tie together in this strange book. This theme of turning away and turning back is a story arc or a loop. It's a core truth. It's a central point to all of it. And of course, the point of the entire body of scripture and church and worship and faith is to remember to have humility before God. That is the point. I don't think I know a single person who doesn't believe that humility before God 
sounds like a bad idea. And that includes atheists and scientists and rednecks and hippies. Most of the atheists I know say they don't believe in God, but scratching the surface a bit, you come to realize that they mostly hate arrogance and religious people, and therefore they say they hate God, as if God were some kind of sidekick to a certain person or a group of people. This is an example of throwing out the baby Jesus with the bathwater. It can be a newsflash to some people that Jesus himself also hated religious hypocrites, which may shock people because they realize that they are not that far from God after all once they clear away the crap of thinking about a certain group of people as the representatives of God or somehow God, them, God himself. And that's the joke on us moderns who mock traditional religion and organized religion. We think we've shrugged it off. We think we've taken religion off like a dirty shirt because we are now too smart. We're too busy. We're too enlightened. But it turns out that we had another shirt on underneath with the same brand name titled religion. We run from one religion right into the arms of another religion. And why do we do that? Because we have no choice. We must. Our hearts require it. We cannot help it or hide from it. If we get rid of our rosary, we'll go find crystals and horoscopes. If we discard daily reading of the Gospels, we'll do daily readings on politics or sports or technology or the World Economic Forum or Harry Potter, whatever. We want meaning. We need reasons for belief and we need a sense of right and wrong and we need a sense of justice. And like it or not, the built-in urge for religion surfaces in every person in all ages. This feature of human experience cannot be stifled, or not for long. And even when it's stifled, it's still peeking out, though we may be unaware of it. God and country, that old saying, God and country, those were the old banners that gave people meaning. And all of history has shown how those can be abused and twisted into cruel and unusual manifestations of evil. God, country, and even family are being replaced with a variety of distractions today, but this will not last long. It won't last forever. A time of plenty and peace leads to diversion and distraction. The period of relative peace held now will fade, and along with it, so will these new religions. Rome had its Pax Romana. We have our Pax Americana happening or coming to a close. The new religions will revolve around the individual for now. The old standards with all their flaws, they did provide a sense of purpose and meaning in people's lives. The book of Genesis did not take shape by accident. It is the result of thousands upon thousands of generations of understanding how human life and society stay together and fall apart. The story begins with God, then leads to a family, and finally that family forms a nation. Literalists, if you read it literally, you will miss this because you're not looking for it or you're not hearing it. You're not looking for the religious truth. You're looking at the literal things like Adam was 900 years old versus what are they trying to tell us here. This order matters in Genesis of what is happening because as soon as we attempt to ignore God, we begin to destroy the family and as the family goes, so goes any nation. 
The 20th century smashed the notion of national pride as always being a good thing. We saw disorder and death drape itself under a flag. We're seeing it now. The nations of Germany, China, and the Soviet Union all tossed out God as the first casualty and followed that attempted murder with millions of actual murders of human beings. Today, it's less fashionable to have national pride, but if you doubt that national pride still exists, you don't need to look for a redneck with a jacked up pickup on the gravel roads of America. Just watch the opening of any World Cup soccer game when the national anthem rings out for each team. Look at the faces of the players, of the soccer players, eyes wet with tears, their arms locked together, their cheeks and foreheads steeled like flint, like St. Paul going into Athens. Their faces are flint for the coming match against another nation. With their arms linked with teammates, they're almost linked with the crowd and those watching at home. And it's this emotional appeal that is powerful. The bond of nationhood cements the people through the playing of the song. The crowd sings at the top of their lungs to give strength to those men on the pitch, like soldiers set to fight a 90-minute war by sport, like proxies for the hordes of citizens at home to win glory for the symbol of their common flag and to bring honor to that shared patch of dirt that the nation calls its home, where all its dreams and feats and failures and hopes and history good or bad, has tied them together. That nationalism and tribalism is very much still present, just as our sense of religion may appear hidden, but it is ever-present. National pride must be checked by the higher power of something else, of the divine. But whenever the policy of God first slips, nationalism becomes a brutal god, and so now we are rightfully wary of leaders who promise the moon and stars. Even family pride must be checked by the divine, or the same problem arises. Further yet, even when God first is replaced with religion first, then the religion itself becomes a God, and God gets shoved to the side. And this can happen with Catholics or Muslims or Jews. Anything replacing God marks the end of truth and results in guaranteed chaos, because there is no ultimate truth or justice. Nationalism is good in the right dosage. Individualism is good when kept beneath the creator. Religion is good when humility before God remains the focus. In other words, all of these things are good when ordered correctly and not in themselves, in themselves the ultimate goal. Religion is best when it does not wield state power, but rather acts as the moral compass of state power. And that is why the arguments for religious freedom from Tertullian and Justin Martyr to Thomas Jefferson to the Dignity of Man, Dignitatis Humanae, all of these writings remain critical for future generations, perhaps even more today than when those writers first shared their ideas. Any attempts at coercion of faith upon people will fail miserably and cannot avoid devolving into a horrifying totalitarianism. This applies to nationalism, individualism, or religion. If this sounds like exaggeration, you need look back no further than 100 years at the many dictatorships and attempts to crush all forms of dissent. You can even look to right now in, in China, in Russia, even in the US. And again, coercion has reappeared. 
with its current manifestation in America taking up the banner of individualism as the ultimate good. The saying, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it, that's not a true statement. We will repeat history whether we know history or not. Today, politics and career often take a front seat over God, family, or flag as we attempt to provide meaning through votes and jobs and at our peril ignore the crusty, old, dangerous ways of nationalism and organized religion. The idea today is that we must smash the old. The quote, smash the patriarchy, is about as meaningless as the phrase, support the troops, just like defund the police. There's a lot of sayings like this that are meant to sum up a worldview, but they don't really get to anything specific. They all work as slogans because of their vague intention and unfocused aim. All three of these slogans pretend to preach virtue, but only make the speaker feel superior for selecting a side. What we have today is a situation of personal feeling as truth, which means that we clamor for a stamp of approval for whatever it is we want to do, and in doing so we deem our desires themselves to be good and just. Why do we do that? Well, it's because we want them. Whatever we want, we think is right. And at the end of the book of Judges, the final line matches our times today. The last line of the book of Judges says this, In those days there was no king. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And in the end of the book of Judges, it's chaos. That's where we sit today, and history will play out what the old civilizations and peoples found out the hard way from thousands of years of mistaken pathways through war and peace and seasons of change, of prosperity and poverty. In the Book of Wisdom, Chapter 2, you can read what might have been written today in our age of rising atheism and indifference. As the sacred writer of that book uses the voice of the culture of the self to describe the beliefs they were living out. There is nothing new under the sun. The author of Wisdom states plainly what those without faith in God seek. What are they seeking? They're seeking to craft a world to satisfy delights and to never stop partaking of those delights right up to the last day. Since if there is no afterlife or judgment or resurrection of the dead, then what else is there but food, drink, entertainment, and fun? I mean, virtue is for suckers if that's the case. Here's an excerpt from the Book of Wisdom, chapter 2. It says, For by mere chance we were born, and hereafter we shall be as though we had not been, because the breath in our nostrils is smoke, and reason a spark from the beating of our hearts. And when this is quenched, our bodies will be ashes, and our spirit will be poured abroad like empty air. Therefore, let us enjoy the good things that are here, and make use of creation with youthful zest. Let us have our fill of costly wine and perfumes, and let no springtime pass us by. But let our strength be our norm of righteousness, for weakness proves itself useless. It seems that they're actually kind of talking about a sort of hedonistic way of life. And it's interesting because even the Epicureans who denied God still felt that virtue was a virtue. But that was the goal, to be virtuous. That's not the case with the hedonists. So this, this is summing up the will to power 
3,000 years before any German tackled it. Book of Wisdom, chapter 2, seems to be way ahead of Nietzsche. All of this chapter of wisdom sounds very familiar today. We have middle-aged men gulping testosterone pills and taking protein shakes, and they're worshiping the god of youth, with the enemy being old age. Marriages are sacrificed for pornography every day, as the sacred desires of our fickle minds must be satisfied. Technology is a god that promises to solve all of our problems, even though it actually created the problems that it now needs to solve. And if you don't see that, if you don't think technology has created the problems, climate change is a result of technology and advancement. The threat of nuclear war is, a th is from technology. Cyber attack, taking out the energy grid, mega earthquake from fracking, coronavirus, all of those things came from technology. And I'm, I know the last one's controversial, but I don't think it came from a bat. I'm sorry probably the most political I'll ever get on this podcast, hopefully. Consumerism presses forward with the latest fads and gadgets and vehicles and fashions to occupy our wants and desires. Consumerism is different from technology, but kind of goes hand in hand. The rampant self-indulgent runs riot as the saying, to each his own, plays out in real time before our eyes. Sin is seen as only that which could harm another, which is the masterstroke of our egos to allow us to keep clinging to the seven deadly sins because we say they only harm ourselves. And even self-harm is denied as these addictions cut so deep that you know, even senior men cannot give up habits that should have died as they passed from adolescence into adulthood. I say at least the Greeks gave names to the gods. We, we pretend there is no God while we live out full lives worshiping them. The Greeks had Hephaestus and Zeus and Athena and Apollo and Dionysus and Aphrodite and Eros. I would challenge you to watch TV ads and see if you can tell exactly which Greek God is calling for worship in each commercial. There may be a good opportunity for a board game or bingo cards for finding which Greek God is being dialed up in each advertisement. So, Today, just to bring it back, the religion of science that I held is not only a modern replacement for religion, it's just one of the better ones. It's one of the most complete candidates because it has a full cosmology. It satisfies reason the most by with while cutting away faith. Some of the other ones I talked about are more faith-driven. By definition, the science, religion by itself of science cannot extend into matters of faith and morality, but for many followers it does. The role of science is to observe and explain the natural world, but when it extends past that it becomes philosophy and often bleeds into religion or becomes religion. Our modern cosmology and understanding of the universe looks back on that of the book of Genesis with a sneer. But a thousand years from now, it's just as likely that our understanding will look equally silly of what our modern scientists are telling us. Our concepts of black holes and quantum physics and string theory, they may sound as ludicrous to us as Genesis's firmament that held the waters above and below the earth. It's even possible that the firmament theory of Genesis will seem more wise should the next round of cosmological definition be something
completely strange to us moderns. But in either case, the structure of the universe that we know at different points in history tells us nothing about faith or morals. And I think to get caught up in Genesis about the firmament and having waters above and below the earth, which sounds ridiculous to now to us, is to misread it. They did not have the advances in telescopes and computing. They didn't have the, the, the things we have today to understand that. But they did have an understanding of the world around them, and they were more interested in faith and morals, and they were telling stories that help us understand the world that still worked. So Plato and Paul and Confucius and Buddha and Shakespeare and Dante, those are the storytellers and the ones, you know, faith, morals. They have deeper insights into truth than all the scientists in history, even if all of those writers had never heard of calculus or chemistry. Science makes for a good religion because it can explain so many things and make sense of our world and, and provide an answer for most questions. You know, ever since Voltaire's lifelong, relentless attack on religion made headway, legions of science apologists stand at the ready to take up arms in defense of nature to act as a check against the slightest whiff of religious fanaticism. It has become every bit as religious as religion, as can be seen in the long crusade of ink and letters from Voltaire to Karl Marx to Sigmund Freud to John Dewey in the education system. The claim is that we are creatures caught up in a cosmic accident where knowledge can only be ascertained by the scientific method. Only what is observable, repeatable, and testable is real. You'll see the refrain online. Where's the data for this? What is the data? Well, consciousness is merely a result of evolution, is what we're told. Our morality and stories are but guardians and guides for our own self-preservation, learned through a cruel history of pain and suffering. Art, literature, and religion are side effects of overactive imaginations of weak and primitive tribes that invented magic, superstition, cap uppercase god, lowercase gods, and lowercase goddesses for psychological and sociological survival. This modern god of science has a scapegoat for blame, for redemption, and for justification, just like the old religions. A religion must have an enemy, as all gods promise approval. All religions have cheerleaders. They have ultimate righteousness. And that means someone else must lose. Christianity has the devil. It has the fall, and it has original sin. There has to be a loser, an opponent. And you cannot be a freedom fighter today without an oppressor. You cannot be freed without overcoming a master. For the modern gods, the enemy is still there if you look for it. Who are the enemies? Well, it's the other political party. They have to be wrong. In fact, for many people, the other political party is the root of evil. What about uh, for people who worship youth? It's the ravages of age and deterioration. Those are the things to blame and fight against. Diet, sugar, fat, high fructose corn syrup, those are the things to blame. Otherwise, for other groups, the, the anti-intellectuals are to blame. It's the hillbillies. They're the ones to blame. For another side, it's the immigrants who are to blame. 
No, it's the rich, it's the wealthy who are to blame. No, it's those on welfare who are to blame. The capitalists are guilty, squeezing blood out of the workers. No, it's the communists are causing the problem by killing all motivation. They all have a hero and they all have a villain. My favorite quote about the grand, the grand left-right argument in, of economics is from John Kenneth Galbraith, who said, in capitalism, man oppresses man. In communism, it's just the opposite. While that is funny, it's also a true statement. But it's also worth noting that one of those ideologies has proven repeatedly to embrace wholesale slaughter of humans much more readily than the other. And I don't even have to mention which one of it is for you to know the answer. And it's the same one that inherently denies God as one of its core tenets. And then there's the most popular villain of all time, the Christians. Science fundamentalists tend to take aim most pointedly at Christians and often Muslims too, but in this cultural moment, it is the Christians. Never mind the fact that modern science would not exist without Christianity, or that most of the great breakthroughs were made by God-fearing people. Let's set aside those minor names, just those minor ones like Mendel, Galileo, Kepler, Pascal, Boyle, Newton, Faraday, Mendel, Pasteur, Calvin, and Einstein. Ignore all of those thinkers who, were, who just happened to be religious. Ignore them for a moment. Because there is some truth to the accusation of blame, of course, as many readily point to things like the Spanish Inquisition and behavior of Christian explorers in the New World, that's quote, Christian explorers in the New World, that followed on Columbus's heels. Europe has horrific segments of history as religions can be abused and twisted. And when it's joined to power, that's when the problems begin. For instance, if you were to read the letters of St. Bartolome de las Casas to hear about what Spanish wealth seekers were doing to natives in the Caribbean, some of them under the banner of their supposed faith, you will be revolted revolted. And were it not for Bartolome de las Casas writing in the 1520s to alert about the horrors of the Spanish running amok in the New World, then the church would never have written this the encyclical called Sublimus Deus in 1537, condemning all enslavement and reasserting the fact that natives are created in the image and likeness of God. And even then, could a letter from the Pope suddenly halt the evil of men running wild who want nothing more than gold, violence, power, sex. No. No, the letter would not stop that. And it didn't. Maybe it helped it, but it didn't stop it. But it does make me wonder how much longer and how much worse the state of butchery would have continued if no one like Bartolome de las Casas had been present to witness and report on the evils because he was one of the few voices crying out from the literal wilderness of the new world when these horrors were happening. Unfortunately, that this is not an isolated event in human history restricted to Europeans, as you can read stories of the gulags in Russia or the lengthy list of massacres in China or find numerous accounts of similar gruesome events coming from the Ottomans or Romans or Zulus or Mayans or Incas or Hawaiians, or First Nations, 
or literally any culture that ever existed, try as we might today to gloss over the shared flaw in our hearts, which has always been with humans wherever we have lived. Thanks to the 20th century, when nationalism and socialism reigned, Europeans, they led the way in all body count statistical categories for brutality and inhumanity. But to assume that only one continent of people is capable of atrocity is to ignore reality and all of his history. We want to plug our ears and close our eyes, but to pretend that one group of people has this flaw while other human groups do not carry the same disease is to bury our heads in the sand of a version of history that would more aptly be called fantasy, not history. One undeniable fact is that as we gain knowledge and mastery over science and technology, we become increasingly deadly as each invention increases the death toll from the longbow to the broadsword, to the stirrup for the ability to ride horses better, to the musket, to the cannon, to mustard gas, to the atom bomb, to the intercontinental ballistic missile, to biological weaponry, to whatever unexpected coming attack will slay our modern energy grid and supply chain and water supplies today. The reason why is that with each advance, the greed of opportunity is seized by people. The question is always, how can we make money or benefit from this new knowledge? And it's rarely, should we be doing this at all? I've seen this firsthand in product meetings where the ability to do something is adopted, such as spy on shoppers or install keystroke logging software. And the uneasy question usually arises about ethics from mousy engineers but is quickly knocked down by an executive or manager who wants a good fiscal quarter. To observe this human tendency to exploit others does not require a war to see it. We're all seeking to find an advantage using whatever tool is available. Just as a younger sister learns to cry tearfully to thwart a bullying older sister or brother because the younger one learns that it can summon a father or mother to arrest the bully and stop what's happening. If the younger sister had a taser that proved more effective, she would just use that. Christians never needed any extra assistance from its own followers to earn the hatred of its enemies. No, they're hated even when they're preaching the good news, the gospel, with humble hearts and mercy in mind. But rest assured, any atrocity or honor committed under the banner of professed Christians never came from Jesus Christ, the founder of the faith. Anyone who says it does, doesn't understand Jesus and needs to start again on Matthew 1, verse 1, and proceed to John 21, verse 25. The, evil, the evils that people do in Jesus' name have never come from Jesus. This is something quickly and readily forgotten. Whether or not those who acted in God's name as a wolf in sheep's clothing were true believers does not even matter, matter because the bloodstain remains. The wound of scandal brought by someone professing faith remains for a long time. The lion is supposed to lay down with the lamb, not eat it, no matter how delicious the lamb looks. The believer is supposed to give unto Caesar, not become Caesar. Christians in error have become the example held up in pop culture. Many TV shows today have the villain being a Christian, 
it's really easy to see who the villain of American society is by watching movies or reading books from a specific year as once it was the Soviets that held all the roles of villains or the communists. And then it was Middle Eastern Muslims. And today it's almost entirely Christians. Yet Jesus still remains risen up and glorified. And no matter what evil men carry out, he himself can never be sullied. This is why Christianity can be stood up time after time after every apparent death blow. It rises again with Jesus himself. Because of the high, impossible standards set by Jesus, we can never live up to it, not fully, and often not even minimally. For this reason, the sex abuse of children by Catholic clergy hurts all the worse because Jesus' church on earth is meant to be the keeper of the light of faith, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Yet for all the truth, beauty, and goodness that the faithful, including me, see in our church, in its essence and meaning, in its buildings, its art, its catechism, in the history, the mysteries of the Holy Mass, in the sacraments, in the rosary, in the real presence of the Eucharist, it hurts terribly when the attack comes from the church itself, when trust has been eroded from the inside. And still, the beauty of all those parts can never be destroyed or diminished, no matter how far fallen the followers have gone in the ruinations of their souls, because we always look back to the cross. We look to Jesus on the cross, and that is where all the sins of the world have been put. And we did that. We all did that. It's, it's important to remember, I did that. I've done it. So betrayed trust among non-Christians brings bruises. But among the faithful from inside, the betrayal gives a nearly fatal wound. The saying, there's no honor among thieves, that's meant to be intended for non-Christians, which is why the sex abuse scandal provides endless firepower for powerful guns aimed at the Catholic Church. And for the billion people who have known and trusted good priests, this was, was and is especially painful, sometimes too hard for words, to the point that excuses are made, and sometimes even excuses for the excuses for the behavior, when there is no excuse that can be allowed. The pain of the victims supersedes all guilt and shame. But it was not God that committed the crimes. It was, it was corrupt men who abused their power and violated every precept of the faith and caused immeasurable scandal. Immeasurable scandal. It's, um, it's impossible to see how they can not be being dealt with by God um, negatively for that. But that's for God to judge. For the many that would like to see the church wither and die, thinking that this event will surely be the final death of Christianity, they will be sorely disappointed. I've read online people thinking, we're finally getting out under the, the yoke of religion. We're finally escaping Christianity. And I hate to tell them that's, that's not going to happen. The scandal, this scandal, like many before it, has rocked the church for 2,000 years. And each of those scandals looked like the last punch. But the church won't die because it cannot die. And I'm not saying this to be arrogant or rude. I'm not trying to be uncharitable. Um, I'm saying it because it's a fact. In every age, Jesus somehow gathers a people to his church because he's always raised up on the cross 
and we all see that. And eventually, if you look at it long enough, you see the answer. Every generation of humans rediscovers the power of the same man from Nazareth over and over again and again, because nothing comes close to its power. Nothing touches the completeness of the life of Jesus and nothing overcomes the resurrection once you believe in that. And clearly I have no right to speak for anything regarding the church. I have no status. I'm not even a very good Catholic. I should probably just shut up and not share my opinion on these topics, but I know what I've found and it's something quite different and far more meaningful and powerful than what my old religion of science could offer.